0: can be the first disabled person to go into space. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: With music, news, and information, this is
2: Radio 3.
1: Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. We're nearly at the end of the week, Thursday the 24th of November. This is Money Talk on Radio 3, and I'm Peter Lewis. A member of the PBOC's Monetary Policy Committee, prominent economist Wang Yiming said yesterday that he sees China's GDP growth above 5% in 2023. He said his forecast was based on COVID disruptions ending and the government's rolling out more policies to boost confidence and consumption. The minutes of the Federal Reserve's November meeting released Wednesday show policymakers expect a slower pace of interest rate increases soon. However, officials said they still see little signs of inflation abating. Singapore's Ministry of Trade and Industry has lowered its forecast for the country's economy, citing a softening external demand outlook following Europe's energy crunch and China's continued COVID-related restrictions. The city-state's economy is projected to grow around three and a half percent in 2022. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by wealth investment strategist Nzo Wanfale and Iris Pang at ING Wholesale Banking, talking about the development of Ireland's financial sector. Is David Costello, Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau? Money Talk
0: on RTHK Radio 3.
1: On Wall Street, U.S. stocks rose for a second day and Treasury bonds climbed after the Fed minutes signalled a slowing in the pace of interest rate increases. The S&P 500 gained 0.6% to close at 4,027. The Dow rose 96 points or a third of a percent to 34,194. And that Composite increased 1% to 11,285. The Pan-European Stock 600 index added 0.6%. London's FTSE 100 climbed 0.2%. Hong Kong stocks rebounded from a two-week low on Wednesday even as new COVID cases flared up across the mainland. The Hang Seng Index oscillated between gains and losses before ending the day 99 points or 0.6% higher at 17524 The tech index climbed 1.1%, boosted by solid earnings from Guaishou and Baidu. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose a third of a percent to 3097 In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil slipped almost 4% to $84.91 a barrel on concern about falling demand as PMI readings from the US and the Eurozone disappointed. And the group of seven nations considered a price cap on Russian oil. Gold is slightly firmer at $1,751 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield fell seven basis points to 3.69%. And the US dollar weakened to a one-week low following the dovish Fed minutes. The euro is trading at $1.04. The bucks at 139.39 Japanese yen. The British pound is one point four percent stronger at $1.20 and a half cents and nine Hong Kong dollars and forty-four cents. Offshore Chinese Yuan has slipped to seven point one five versus the dollar, and Bitcoin is two and a half percent firmer at sixteen and a half thousand dollars. Around Asia-Pacific stock markets in Australia, the SX200 up a third of a percent. Japan's Nikkei 225 reopening after a holiday yesterday up 1.2 percent. The Cosby in South Korea has jumped three quarters of a percent. And it looks like the Hang Seng is going to open 200 points firmer this morning. Time's 8.07. Let's welcome our regular Thursday commentator, Wealth Investment Strategist, Enzio Ronfarl. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining him and us is Iris Pang, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking. Morning, Iris.
2: Morning Peter.
1: So let's start. I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, Wang Yiming's comments yesterday. He's a member of the PBOC Monetary Policy Committee. Said he sees China's GDP growth above 5%, but he did add some important caveats to that. He said its forecast is based on COVID disruptions ending and the government rolling out more policies to boost confidence and consumption. And he also added that there was little room uh, for further interest rate cuts. So what do you make of that, uh, Enzio?
3: Well, first of all, I don't know. I just cannot know where he sits in the pecking order in Chinese policymaking. I suspect it's a good old fashioned bun fight between the PBOC and Mr. Xi, who really is the economic czar. I'm also surprised that he is saying five percent. Not why? Why not four percent? Goldman Sachs is four point five, I believe, um, or three point five, or any other number. Um, China's economic time is pretty rotten. Excess demand for money, excess supply of goods. The base effect means. Of course, that growing off a lower base is easier, so if the economy is rotten this year, which it is, then of course next year it will improve a little bit, but 5% to me sounds a bit stretched. Of course, he's covered his um, he's covered his bases by saying, well, if and if, so centrist paribus, our old friend in econ- economics, is alive and kicking. I'm not a buyer. Iris, can you shed some light on Wang
1: Yiming? He is obviously a member of the Monetary Policy Committee, so is his views here do they they carry weight is it a sort of official view?
2: I am thinking that there there, there is some changing about how policies is um uh testing the water in the public and also in the market. And we have seen such um official pol- uh, officials talk on monetary policy, COVID policy and other things. Mm. So, um, we, we can't take this as, uh, you know, the exact forecast for um, PBOC for next year, but it is, It may be a guideline, um, for us to see that there could be easing COVID policy. And of course, we see a lot of supportive measures this month. And, um, there are the, the state council also hints that there could be a triple R cut coming soon. So, um, five percent is not really impossible. The key is that how relaxed the COVID measure will be. in 2023 and if it happens it should happen in the first quarter otherwise too late like 2022 then it is not doing any good for GDP growth. So is it sort of suggesting that maybe
1: um, China's veering towards a target of five percent and in some ways it's sort of trying to raise expectations a little bit about the economy?
2: Yes I think it it raised not only expectation about the economy and it raised expectation about the COVID measures and also supportive measures. So um, these things are very difficult to time, mm. especially COVID measures, because the number of COVID cases is now quite random. And um, we, we can't really pin down on the timing.
1: But as you mentioned, there is a sort of contradiction, isn't there? Because he's saying uh, the PBOC has limited room to cut interest rates further, whereas, as you mentioned, the State Council is sort of indicating uh, that a triple R cut could be imminent.
2: Yeah, that's why I say that um, officials nowadays are testing the water um, in in the market rather than really um, really mean what is going to happen exactly um, uh, by the PBOC.
3: Peter, if I can, may I just add something? I think you mentioned rock and hard place. It's also on the COVID policy because if the government eases a lot as the markets, I believe, fallaciously is hoping, then of course it's, many people will get killed and that's not, because they haven't been vaccinating properly. Only two-thirds of the above 80-year-olds have been vaccinated the third time. Mm-hmm. So, I'm of, the, I'm of the view that it's not only the policy which is caught between a rock and a hard place, but also the health policy.
1: Mm, it's contradictory, isn't it? And he mm. does raise this that it is all dependent um, upon the right. easing of COVID measures, which is a big, big if, isn't it? Because actually, yes. what we're seeing at the moment um, is the things opposite. going in the other way. Look I mean, at Apple. Yeah. And well, what's going on at the iPhone uh, city uh, plant in Zhengzhou? And also, you know, it's estimated now that maybe about 20, 25 percent of China's economy um, is actually facing some sort of movement restrictions or lockdowns. So this yes. suggests that we're moving in the wrong direction at the yes. moment.
3: Yeah. Well, it's, it's just if it's, it's a little bit like with, with, with varicose veins. If, if you cut the circulation, <laughs> then off goes the leg. <laughs> Sorry, thank you, a, thank you for that. graphic. <laughs> no, no, I've got them, so don't worry about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we don't really need to go there. <laughs> is, is, there a, is there a political element to this? Because obviously, um, President Xi has a goal of doubling per capita GDP by 2035. So that means to get there, um, China's got to have um, an annual economic growth rate of, of at least about four and three quarter percent. Mm. So is this also part of it to, to try and keep that target um, on track?
3: Well, I don't, if I can just quickly start, I don't think it's going to reach that remotely because if growth continues being defined as the growth of the labor force plus productivity, well, productivity is pretty low. It's not 0.75%. Growth in the population, not 0.25%. That gives me a stonking 1%. Now, whether it's 1% or 2% does not matter, but it's way below the 4% that would be required, as you point out.
1: Well, what do you think, Iris? Do you think this is also part of it to try and meet that uh, doubling of per GDP capita uh, targets by twenty thirty
2: five? I I think that it is still possible because um, in in the first half of the of the of the decade, um, China had um, quite good growth, so um, the 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 previous data points to that direction. Mm. Of course, we had uh, two to three years now bad numbers, but remember that um, there are. a a lot of things going on and for example i expect that there will be massive r&d in the technology sector Mm -hmm. to echo the 20th party congress highlights to advance technology so this is something that is uh, not out of control of the of the government it is actually the government steering this so it is still possible is China
1: a main, really in the same position that many other economies in uh, economies in the world are now finding themselves in? Which is that you can't rely on stimulus anymore. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if they were going if they do cut interest rates, because the problem is um, it's not that there's a lack of demand. Oh, the problem is, um, is people don't want to borrow anymore at the moment. So you can't rely on this stimulus, you've got to come up with longer term uh, growth measures, which really require some painful sort of restructuring in the economy, doesn't it?
2: Yes, I think so. Um, for example, cutting interest rate actually can't help COVID measures or mm-hmm. the number of COVID. And it actually also can't help real estate um, developers because real estate developers should face higher interest costs anyway. So um, the two biggest issue in China would not be solved by just cutting interest rate. That's why the PBOC are doing a lot of behind the scene unconventional policy, for example, providing matching loan for commercial banks just for constructions of uncompleted homes. So this kind of things, this kind of uncon- unconventional policies will continue rather than the traditional policy.
1: And also it doesn't help consumption either, does it, really, cutting interest rates, particularly if everyone's still locked down?
2: Yeah, Um and, and, you know, um, for consumers, um, about 30% of them could rely on credits to consume, but most of them, um, doesn't. So, um, we don't really need to have a lower interest rate to boost consumption demand. It is more on the job market side that, um, the government need to do more.
1: So is China becoming caught in this famous middle-income uh, trap where it's trying to move from uh, sort of middle to high mm-hmm. income, but it's found itself caught in that it, it just can't um, – economic growth is stagnating and it just can't sort of get there? Is, is China falling into that trap?
3: I think so. Um, I just wanted to back up on Iris's very good comments that according to The Economist of last week, they, they had quite a good sentence that um, in the past a property revival has saved China's economy – Now, only a revived economy can save Chinese property. It's exactly what Iris was saying, that if people are insecure, they will save. They won't consume. And so, of course, they're not going to buy a house if if there's no job around. I do think that China is in a middle-income trap. I think that it has the brains and certainly the ability to get out of it, but there's an old friend in economics called the marginal utility, the effectiveness of something. The first beer is great. The second one is still pretty good. The third one is not so good. Um, mm. And that means that even uh, you could keep on throwing money at technology, but the usage of the, the utility of that extra dollar in, in technology expenditures may actually be on the wane. Do you think, we're in a, is China in a middle-income trap, do you think,
2: uh, Iris? Um, I'm thinking it's more about um, COVID measures. Mm-hmm. Middle-income trap is more long-term, actually very structural. Um, we are seeing some signs of it. Um, but whether China can get out of the, or, or avoid middle-income trap, we we can't really see it now because it is masked with the two biggest problem in China, COVID and real estate. Mm. So we we really need to get out of it, and then we will see clearer. But there are signs that yes, I agree with Anzo that there are signs that um, China is is falling into that trap.
3: I think also just to quickly add on uh, the third force, I think is the nine hundred million. Ur- rural unemployed uh, rural people mm-hmm. who a vast majority of which are unemployed and wh- whom we read far too little about in our very urban focused economics that we get here in the Western press at least.
1: Now the other thing Wang Yiming mentioned is that would help the China economy is um, a slowing down in interest rate rises from the Fed. We had the minutes of the Mm. Fed's November meeting and it it did indicate that maybe the pace of interest rate increases will um, slow although they did say they saw little signs of inflation abating. So what do you think? Is inflation easing and is now the time to start slowing the pace of interest rates
3: rises? Well according to it's we a couple of weeks ago we We raised the subject of which inflation rate is the Fed actually referring to. It's clearly not the CPI, amazingly. It is not the per capita expenditure. It's actually something called the... um underlying gauge of inflation which did peak in march the momentum it's a momentum indicator that did peak in march but whether it's going to go down very quickly listeners know on my side that i'm very adamant that there's a lot of supply side driven inflation constraints like labor energy Grain, Argentina, for instance, exports nearly as much as the Ukraine, but Argentina has been whacked by La Nina, so it's not exporting this year. Metals, supply chain disruptions. So all of these supply side things are going to keep inflation very sticky, even if it is abating a little bit in momentum.
1: Iris, are uh, are we peaking?
2: Um... We will peak, of course, but um, the timing is very crucial. And now, with the um, overnight, with the with the Fed minutes, the market reacted quite um, aggressively. That dollar softened, and then yield come down, and. This set of reactions is actually a easing condition mm. of the, of the money market, which is really the opposite that the Fed wants if it wants to curb inflation, right? So I think that we, we could not be too optimistic that the Fed will not hike 75 basis point mm. anymore. So, um, it depends on how the market reacts. Eventually, Mm -hmm. and the Fed may need to hike 75 basis points if the dollar continues to soften and the yield continues to fall.
1: Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard there. Iris Pang, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking and Wealth Investment Strategist, NZO Von Feil. 567 AM, Radio
0: 3. A decade of community
1: broadcasting. When
0: they come into the studio and then they do the recording, and then this is all new experience. CIBS, Community Involvement Broadcasting Service since 2012. It gives them sense of pride that we have our own program in our own language. CIBS is actually giving more color to the different communities that are there in Hong Kong.
1: You can produce your own radio program as well. Apply to CIBS now. Please go to cibs.rthk.hk. It's eight twenty-two, and I'm joined by David Costello. Costello, I should say, Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau. Morning, David. Good morning, Peter. Great to be back. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Listen, I was very interested in a statistic um, that's happened this month and that is that the Paris stock market overtook London as as Europe's largest um, stock exchange. Now, I used to work many years ago in the city of London for quite a while, and I remember for decades London has been sort of the dominant European marketplace. So this seems to be quite a significant um, sort of moment now, that there seems to be a real shifting of of financial power um, around
4: Europe and away from London. Yeah, well, I mean, it's seven years since Brexit, Peter, and uh, that has fundamentally rocked the way the financial markets in Europe are regulated. And it is quite interesting, and it's not surprising in many ways, that in my four years here in Hong Kong, that uh, there's a kind of a blind spot to what's happening in Europe. We're dominated by what's happening here in Hong Kong, what's happening Mm. on the mainland, what's happening in ASEAN, and then the uh, US-China dynamic over the last couple of years have been all encompassing and has almost sucked the oxygen out of what's happening internationally in capital (laughs) markets. And when you look at the centres, you know, Euronext is actually a pan-European stock market. It's not just Paris. It's got seven destinations, including uh, um, Luxembourg, um, Amsterdam and Dublin in particular. Mm -hmm. And so there has been massive changes happening in Europe and they will continue to happen over the next five years. And this is because of Brexit? Is that the main Um, driver? Part of it is Brexit. Part of it is, you know, since the global financial crisis, there has been a restructuring of the way financial services is managed in Europe. You know, uh, there's There can be no doubt that the strength of the the banking union in Europe post GFC has fundamentally altered the way banking has happened in in Europe and we can see how robust the banking response was to the COVID crisis over the last couple of years in Europe. Um, If we were leveraging that type of money during the GFC, it was considered to be a systemic threat to the European Mm -hmm. banking system. Nobody's even mentioning that at the moment because Mm -hmm. of the way we have uh, structured our houses. Now we're in a process of a capital market. Union, uh, which has started two three years ago, and strengthening the way the European capital markets I- is being managed and operated is is a key part of, of the legislative response in Europe.
1: And this is going to continue, and it's going to get worse yeah, for London, yeah. isn't it? Because we, we're hearing that you know, for example, the EU wants derivatives traders to clear um, EU European derivatives, euro uh, derivatives in European markets, not in London.
4: Yes, well, that was something that Ireland did in March 2021. We were doing all of our clearing uh, through London, and we moved uh, almost 100 billion worth of uh, securities across into uh, Brussels, the Euroclear Brussels platform in March 21.
1: And is there going to be more than one centre now? I mean, we're used to really London, that was the, the hub for Europe. Are we going to have several now? Paris, Frankfurt, Milan, Dublin,
4: is it—is it going to be sort of a bit fragmented? Um, I don't think fragmented is probably the best way to kind of view it. I mean, what you're seeing is a, a kind of multi-centre approach to it. I mean, uh, it's... Oh yeah. We, we see it with digital currency. We've seen all of the new innovations. You know, mm-hmm. the big centres of finance are diversifying. You know, the old models of doing business are diversifying. And Dublin has always been a centre of excellence for funds and for trading mm-hmm. in, in, in that space. But we've moved into, um, you know, a centre for debt listing. We've moved into a centre for fintechs. You know, we have this unique kind of combination of being a financial services destination, as well as a global uh, IT hub with all of the major IT centres. Um, companies located in, in Ireland, and this combination has produced fantastic fintech kind of alternatives, mm. and 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 so this is an area that we're over the next couple of years uh, under the new strategy that was launched last month in, in Dublin. Uh, we're prioritising uh, sustainable finance and fintech and digital payments as the kind of key growth centres for Dublin building on our success as Europe's centre for uh, usage and, and funds trading, mm-hmm. listing, but also we're also the European and one of the global listing centres for ETFs and we're the major European centre for ETFs as well. So, so there's a lot of good news coming out of Dublin and a lot of good news coming out of Europe too. So,
1: this seems like a good opportunity for Ireland and for Dublin in particular, then, Mm. because the way that European financial markets work are are changing. So, there's opportunities for new players and also existing players like Dublin, because as you say, it's got a big fund management centre. It's got, I think, over 3 trillion euros of of funds managed from from Dublin.
4: Well, we've actually over 3 trillion domiciled in Dublin, over 6 trillion traded out of Dublin. So, in terms of assets under management, it's over 6 trillion. But in in terms of domiciled funds, it's 3 trillion, you know, which is 10 times. Times <laughs> 10 times our GDP, you know, so mm. so it is, you know, that kind of, it's the same kind of figures that you'll see here in Hong Kong in GDP versus assets under management. And, and what advantages
1: does Dublin have over, say, uh, Paris, Frankfurt and Milan?
4: Well, I mean, this is, you know, it's been fun kind of over the last couple of years talking to European or to Hong Kong business people, uh, you know, because when they, they look at Europe, they all always gravitate to the UK, mm. but, but actually Ireland, this will shock people, Ireland is the largest English-speaking common law country in the European Union, because the UK are not there anymore. Mm. You know, so, so when, you know, from an Asian perspective, from a Hong Kong perspective, when you're used to trading, when you're used to doing business the way you like to do in Hong Kong, the only centre in Europe that you can deal with now is Dublin because of the common law and English-speaking basis that we offer.
1: And how many people, give me a sense of how many people work in financial services in, in Ireland right now and where are you are trying to to get to in the future?
4: Um, we're looking to move towards 50,000 at this stage and that's only international financial services. Mm. I mean we have, it's double that number in domestic financial services in terms of local banking and infrastructures, uh, but uh, we have a huge kind of uh, legal base there, you know. Um, uh, a lot of lawyers involved in in, in in establishing contracts around fund services and a whole range of other stuff, but, but, but 50,000 is the magic figure we're looking to.
1: And I would have thought there's there's certain areas where you could excel because you have a lot of for example, technology companies uh, who have their European headquarters um, in, in Ireland mm-hmm. particularly in Dublin, so I would have thought things like fintech for example, that's an area where really um, you could promote
4: yourself. Um, and it is, yeah we've got some of the world leading fintech companies now coming out of Ireland and you know, what's happening in fintech is that it's, um, even FinTech is no longer a label that's useful anymore because we talk about InsurTech, MedTech. You know, there's there's so many Lots subsets of, of the, <laughs> yeah, so many subtext subsets of the of the FinTech space that that it is interesting. But but certainly FinTech is an area that we've really grown. And uh, this year we were not able to be at FinTech Week, but over the last two to three years, again, it's incredible. But over the last three to four years, Ireland has been the biggest, single biggest stand at FinTech Week in Hong Kong.
1: Mm. And the other area that everyone's talking. About about
4: is sustainable finance. Hmm. Where does Ireland fit in uh, there? Well, we're moving into a great space there and I think we've become, I think Euro next Dublin has become the centre for, for green bond listing in Europe. Hmm. Um, and uh, our own strategic uh, investment fund, Ireland's kind of strategic investment fund has divested from fossil fuels over the last couple of years. Um, and so we really are managing as a bond centre, particularly ESG bonds, Ireland has become the European lead, leader.
1: and. Where's the talents going to come from because there's there really is in the areas that you mentioned like fintech sustainable finance a lot of people want to be there including yeah, Hong yeah. Kong there's this global race almost mm. now to try and find talent attract talent to particular centers like Hong Kong where are you going to find uh, your talent and how will you attract them
4: well uh, I, I figure that I'm really proud of these days is that seventeen um, percent of the Irish population were not born in Ireland and uh, we've turned from a country 20 years ago that were exporting our best people to now importing the best people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and it's an indication of how diversified, how multicultural Ireland has become over the last couple of years, you know. And a couple of things in terms of the transformation of the Irish work- workforce since uh, when I started working in the 1980s is women are a key factor of the workforce. You know, pre-1980, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, uh, women would retire on marriage and forced into retirement almost in the 1970s. And so we We've changed that dynamic over the last 20 years. Women are uh, are an equal part of the workplace. We attract people from different backgrounds, different uh, ethnicities, different kind of sexual orientations. You know, Ireland is an inclusive and welcoming place mm-hmm. and this is an important part of how you attract talent is that you have to make Ireland a welcoming place and that's something that we do and it's something that we've universally uh, traded on. Uh, it started out, I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, two, three, four decades ago but by attracting attracting American multinationals. But that has really Mm. diversified and we're bringing in multinationals and FDI from different sectors.
1: Maybe some lessons there for Hong Kong. David, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you for coming in. Fantastic, Peter. Great to talk. That's David Costello, who is the Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look around the markets for this morning the SX200 in Australia up about 0.4%. Uh, in Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen 1.3%. Cosby also up in South Korea about 3 quarters of a percent. And going to be a similar story for the Hang Seng at the open, looking for a gain of about 175 points. Thank you for listening this morning. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is back chats with Janice Wong and Jenny Lam. The weather forecast. Cloudy, few rain patches. The maximum temperature is going to be around 23 degrees. A few rain patches as well in the next couple of days. And then the weather is going to improve next Monday and Tuesday. It's 22 degrees right now, 93% relative humidity. Times 8.32, here's Tom Warden with the half-hour news.
0: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has appealed to the United Nations Security Council to take action to stop Russian missiles targeting vital infrastructure that have once again plunged Ukrainian cities into darkness and cold as winter sets in. The mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, said some districts of the capital were without power and water supplies had been cut throughout the city. Local agencies reported there had also been explosions in the south and southeast of the country, and air defense systems were targeting Russian missiles. Ukraine's deputy health minister, Alexei Yaramenko, told the BBC the situation was still unfolding.
2: Today,
3: whole country is under attack. We are already seen that Kyiv and other cities, uh, their always electricity system damaged. But attacks attack is not over, so we will see the result in a couple of hours.
0: A Taliban official in eastern Afghanistan says 12 people, including three women, have been publicly flogged after they were found guilty of adultery and theft. A spokesman in Logar province said the women were released after their punishment, while some of the men were sent to jail. The BBC's Anbarasan Itirajan has more. A crowd of about 5,000 people gathered to watch the floggings in a stadium in eastern Afghanistan. Those punished received between 21 and 39 lashes each. It comes days after the Taliban's supreme leader, Haipatullah Sada, ordered judges to fully enforce aspects of the group's hardline version of Islamic law that includes public executions and stonings. The Supreme Court in Britain has ruled that the Scottish Parliament does not have the power to hold a second referendum on independence. The five strong panel of judges said the Scottish Government in Edinburgh could not organise another vote without the consent of the UK Government in London, which it has so far refused to give. Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said she was disappointed by the ruling, but she respected it.
3: Without an agreement between the Scottish and UK governments for either a Section 30 order or a UK Act of Parliament to change its powers, the Scottish Parliament cannot legislate for the referendum that the people of Scotland have instructed it to deliver. That is a hard pill for any supporter of independence, and surely indeed for any supporter of democracy, to
0: swallow. A British Paralympian has been chosen to become the first disabled person to be trained as an astronaut. John McFall has joined the Space Training Corps at the European Space Agency, where he'll work with designers and engineers to see if he can be the first disabled person to go into space. The Paralympic sprinter lost his leg in a motorbike accident when he was 19.